Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to sing the words of Scripture. To have our hearts encouraged and our minds enlightened by simply just singing the words that you have given us. So Lord, today I pray that the words of your Scripture would speak to the hearts of your people. Father, that you would use this time to change us and shape us and fashion us to be more like Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to trust Him and to trust Your Word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our five-part series through the book of 2 Peter today, as you can probably tell from the screen. Last week, we looked at the first 15 verses of 2 Peter chapter 1, and we, we talked about how the Word of God calls us to confirm our calling. It, it, it requires us to do that work. That We talked about how God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, and that through His power, we are able, as Christians with regenerate hearts, to make war against the sinfulness that dwells within us. And flowing out from that, we talked about how we are commanded to be diligent in our pursuit of godliness. This is important because it's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit confirms in us that we are truly born again, that we hate our sin and we fight against it. And where do we find these reminders of what godliness is and how we should pursue it? We find those things in God's Word. And so we talked about the importance of continually seeking those reminders through our personal Bible study and through gathering together with the body to hear preaching and teaching. These things are important. They are vital to our, to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be discussing the question of whether or not we can trust the gospel to be true. And I want to address something right from the start. What we are going to discuss today, what we're going to look at today in the Word of God, is information that is only truly useful to someone who has been given a new heart by the Holy Spirit. We can reason with unbelievers. There's nothing wrong with that. But reason is only going to be helpful to someone, ultimately, to someone who has had their eyes opened by the Lord. We can tell non-Christians all day long how the Word of God is true and right and good and the things of God are true and right and good, but unless the Lord has opened their eyes and given them a new heart, they're never really going to truly believe that. They're always going to find a way to suppress that truth. Paul says it best in Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is not necessarily something that they're consciously doing. But if you are here this morning, and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer, 
my encouragement to you is to pray and ask God to open your eyes to truth this morning. To call out to him, to cry out to him and ask him to give you a new heart. Because that's the only way that this this text is going to be convincing to you. It's the only way that this text is going to speak to your heart today. For those of us who are believers, this text is and should be a reminder and a refresher of why we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Why we know it. And so let's look together at 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 21. The first thing we're going to see, if you're following along on the, ser- on the sermon listening guide, or if you're taking notes for yourself, my first point today comes from verses 16 through 18, and it's the reliability of apostolic, apostolic testimony. The reliability of apostolic testimony. Let's look together at verses 16 through 18 of 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Our passage last week closed with Peter speaking about the importance of reminding the church about those qualities of godliness that are brought about by God's power in those who were saved by Christ. And Peter said that his intention was to continually remind them of these things so that when he was gone, they would still remember them. That his teaching would still be bearing fruit in their lives long after he was dead. And it is still bearing fruit in the lives of the church here some 2,000 or so years later. Amen? And so, as we transition to verse 16, what we see is we we see Peter building his case for why he should be trusted in his judgment about what the gospel should be bringing about in the lives of the church. That's why verse 16 begins with Peter using the word for. He's building from that point into this one. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he reminds his hearers that what he taught them, that that was not, they were not following cleverly devised myths. Myths. Now, in this context, a myth is a story without basis in fact. It's a legend. It's, it's just a fable. It's some sort of story that has some sort of moral imperative, but it's not factual. It's not true. It's not real. And Peter says, when I came to you, when we came to you, that is not what we were following. That is not what we were teaching. But I want you to notice how Peter calls them cleverly devised cleverly devised the idea here is that these myths are intentionally created in order to deceive and manipulate this concept goes all the way back to genesis chapter 3 in the garden of eden where the serpent intentionally twists the words of god in order to deceive eve right what does he say did god actually say you will not surely die. 
you will be like God. He intentionally twists the words of God around in order to manipulate and deceive. Paul talks about this as well in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul and Peter, in tandem here, are saying there are all these other ideas floating around intentionally trying to deceive you, intentionally trying to pull you away from believing the truth about God. And Paul talks about philosophy and empty deceit, human traditions, the elemental spirits of the world. All of these things are out there. And he says, don't be taken captive by that. Be taken captive by Christ. And so going back into 2 Peter, Peter says, we weren't following cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is vital for us to know what we actually believe and to not be led astray by these things which are cleverly devised, whether by Satan himself or by other people. I know it's tempting for us to think that every single myth or, and every sort of deception ultimately is something devised by Satan, but that's not true. There are people out there, a lot of them are on TV, who are intentionally deceiving you so that you will send them money, so that they can get rich off the back of their false gospel. And we must be careful to know what we believe so that we're not taken captive by that. We must know the truth. And Peter reminds them that he made the power and coming of Jesus known to them by way of his eyewitness testimony. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Paul also appeals to eyewitness testimony In 1 Corinthians 15, when he's making his case for Jesus' resurrection from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to, the apostle, to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul essentially says to the Corinthian church, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, there are more than 500 people you could go ask about it. More than 500 people who saw him with their own eyes. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if you've ever tried to get two people to both agree on one lie, it ain't easy. I don't know how you would ever get 500 people to all agree upon the same lie, that they all saw Jesus. 
That's one of the common things that we see in our modern era is people talk about Christianity being an invention of Jesus' disciples, that they pretended that Jesus rose so that they could have some sort of power. I don't know what kind of power people thought that the apostles got out of this since they literally all got killed, except for John who was exiled to an island, but other than John, they literally all got, you know, crucified upside down, got their heads chopped off, you know, sounds like a lot of power to me, right? Sounds like something they would all be willing to die for this lie, right? But Peter is not simply speaking of eyewitness testimony in the same way that Paul is. He is speaking in a specific sense about being an eyewitness to Jesus's majesty, And verse 17 gives us a picture into what he's talking about. He says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration. That's what he's referring to. He's referring to Jesus' transfiguration, which we see in different places in the Gospels. But in Matthew chapter 17, this is, how it's, this is how it's relayed to us. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So I'm going to pause here for a second. Jesus takes these three apostles up on the mountain and they see him glorified. Not the fullness of his glory because they would be dead, but they see a part of the glory of Jesus. And they're so excited by this, and Peter, who I love and admire, because Peter is a lot like me, he's very much a think, like, do it first and think about it later. And Peter is so excited by what's happening, he's like, let's just stay on top of this mountain forever. And we'll put up these three tents, and we'll worship you, and we'll just stay here. And as this is happening, it says, he was still speaking when, behold, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So there's something in the transfiguration that makes the disciples get excited, and they realize something incredible is happening here, but they don't really get the fullness. Because when they really understand, when God speaks and they hear the voice of the majestic glory, as Peter says, and he says, this is my son, listen to him. That's when they really get it. And how do they respond? They are terrified. They are totally terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Only Jesus can say to man when faced with the majestic glory of God, rise and have no fear. Only Jesus can do that. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I can't think of a better testimony of the divinity of Jesus Christ 
than God the Father literally telling these men that Jesus is his son. And so Peter, like I said, refers to God as the majestic glory after saying that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. So Peter is, even in his language that he's using, reinforcing the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God. And so we have this calling from Peter to repent and believe the gospel, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter says it, by someone who both saw Jesus glorified on the mountain and heard the voice of God. Those people who present cleverly devised myths don't have that. But this eyewitness testimony is not the only thing that Peter has backing up his call to repent and believe the gospel. The second point today is the authority of God's word. The authority of God's word. Let's look together at verses 19 through 21 of 2 Peter chapter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter here, for the readers, for us, wants to make sure that we understand that we have something even more significant than his eyewitness testimony. Peter doesn't just stop and say, well, I saw it, just believe me. But Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's talking about the Bible. He's talking specifically here about the Old Testament scriptures. He is saying that the testimony of the word of God about Jesus Christ is even more meaningful and powerful and full than Jesus' words. You may have heard someone say, you may have even said it yourself, well, if I had just seen these things with my own eyes, I would believe it. But Peter says, this is even better than that. You have literally thousands of years of the prophets saying, God is going to send a Messiah. God is going to send a Messiah. God is going to send a Messiah. And guess what? God sent a Messiah. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of man. So we saw the cleverly devised myths of the serpent deceiving the woman into sin. And what does God say? Speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God makes a promise even then that this, the Messiah is going to come, that the offspring of the woman will come. And although the serpent may harm the Messiah, also known as crucifying him, putting him to death, he's not going to win. It's just like bruising his heel. And the offspring of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. That's the very first promise of God, that Messiah is coming. And God made promise after promise after promise. And here is Peter laying out before the church saying, this is what God has done. 
If you don't believe the eyewitness testimony, if you don't believe what the Gospel has to say, look at the Scriptures. They testify about Jesus Christ. So what should we do with that knowledge? Peter tells us that we would do well to pay attention to it. He talks about it as as paying attention like a lamp shining in a dark place in a sense that in the sense that the word is what illuminates our lives so so we live in a place that frequently deals with stormy weather hurricanes and things of that nature and brother mike cover your ears i don't want i don't want you to get offended but the power goes out <laughs> brother mike's doing his best y'all <laughs> the power goes out and it usually goes out at the most inopportune times. And if you're like me and you have little kids who sleep with the aid of a sound machine, the power goes out and the sound machine turns off and both of your kids instantly wake up. So it's 2.30 in the morning. And the wind is howling. And it's about a million degrees. And your children are awake. And so what do you do? You look for something. Yeah, call Mike. Mike. No, we're not on Clico. Mike can't help me. But you look for something to provide light. Because the world doesn't stop just because the power went out. You look for a flashlight or a candle or a lantern or something of that nature. You need light. Because also, if you're like me, there are children's toys on the floor. Things that will cause you great pain if you happen to step on them. In the middle of the night, in the dark, as you have to navigate your way to the bathroom. And so Peter says... You should look at the Word of God in the same way that you look at your lamp in a dark place. As the thing that is going to keep you from harm. As the thing that is going to guide you in the right direction. And eventually, either the power comes back on or the sun comes up. And so Peter says you would do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. There are two ideas in view here that we should be waiting for as we use the word as our lamp. The first one is obvious, the literal return of Jesus Christ. That's what we are waiting for. Until we see Jesus face to face, we are looking to the Word of God to sustain us and guide us and keep us and protect us. But the other thing is that we are looking forward to the sanctification and purifying of our hearts by the Holy Spirit, bringing us closer to Christ-likeness every single day. That's what Peter means when he says, and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen, folks. Things like fighter verses and catechism questions the reason why we do those things is to aid your heart, to take the Word of God, to place it in your heart so that in the day of trouble, you have access to it. It's right there. It brings to mind the fact that when we call upon God, like in this week's fighter verse, He answers our prayers. He hears us. He cares for us. Listen, I'm not just doing fighter verses to impress you with my memorization skills because frankly, they're not very good. I'm doing fighter verses because they're good for all of us. 
We should be paying attention to the Word of God as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Why is it important that we pay this kind of attention? First of all, in verse 19, I want you to notice how Peter says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And then he says, to which you will do well to pay attention. The we and the you there are important. First of all, when Peter says we, he is referencing the authoritative word of the apostles. He's talking about the New Testament. Okay? So Peter, when he talks about the scriptures, he's saying the Old Testament. And he says, when we, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He is saying these letters that we are writing, these gospels that we are writing, these new letters and books that we are giving you, this is how you understand the prophetic word provided in the Old Testament. And then when he says you, he's specifically wanting us to understand that we as the church of Jesus Christ, are called to be obedient to that authoritative word. We are called to follow and listen and obey the word of God. That's what we are called to do. So it's important that we pay that kind of attention so that we can do that. And then in verses 20 and 21, another reason that we should, we should take the word like this Look at what Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, you should listen to this because neither the prophecy nor the interpretation comes from the will of man. It all comes from God. Men cannot create out of whole cloth a genuine prophecy. Prophecy involves speaking the word of God in an authoritative way. The prophets in the Old Testament, when they said this is the word of the Lord, there was an expectation of obedience there. So today, when someone tells you, I have a prophecy from God, here's the problem with that. It must by nature of what prophecy is, be authoritative. If it's truly God's word, you must listen and obey. But the problem with that is that people's prophecies often seem to be self-serving or contradict with one another. I'll give you an example, and I've probably said this before, but I love using this as an example. When I was going to seminary, there was one particular young lady, she was very attractive, had a great personality, and she had like six different guys in seminary come to her and say, the Lord told me that I should date you. That's a way of speaking prophecy. The Lord said this. The problem with that is, the Lord never told her she should date any of them. And their words all contradicted each other. Do you know why? Because prophecy is in here. This is the word of the Lord. If you want to hear the word of the Lord, read your Bible out loud. What I am saying to you is not the word of the Lord, except for when I'm reading the scripture. I am telling you the words of Corey Taylor. They're still good, I hope, but they don't carry that kind of authority and weight. And Peter is reinforcing that. 
And not only that, not only can men not create prophecies on their own, men also cannot of their own will devise some sort of interpretation for these prophecies. There is only one source of prophecy and one source of interpretation, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. And Peter says that. He says the Word of God comes through men being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we believe about God's Word, that it was written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is how we can say that the Word is perfect and without error. Because God himself is the ultimate author of it. That's how we can say that. Which is how we can say without doubt that the Bible is authoritative. Because it is the word of the Lord. And so we must believe it and do what it calls us to do. Because think about it. If this book is really the word of God, and it is, and you say... I don't really have to believe that. I don't really have to listen to that. I don't really have to do what it says. That is literally the same thing as if Peter on the mountain of transfiguration when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. And Peter went, nah. It's literally the same thing. And I don't know about you, I don't think saying nah to God is really that great of an idea. Obey the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of the Lord. Look to the word of the Lord as a lamp shining in the darkness, as Peter calls us to do. And so the root, the underlying issue here that Peter is drawing attention to is that we would repent and believe the gospel. That's what Peter is drawing us to. So the question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, point number one, we are all sinners who need a Savior. We're all sinners who need a Savior. There, there is no one righteous, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is no such thing as a good person. I might be stepping on some of your toes here. You might be going, but I, I'm a good person. Nope, you're not. Neither am I. My wife, as sweet as she is, terrible person. My children, as cute as they are, horrible people. Also really bad roommates, but that's a different issue. We are all sinners. We are all depraved. The Bible says that our righteousness before God is like filthy rags. We offer nothing of value to God whatsoever. We are sinners who are in need of a Savior. The next thing that we must understand about the gospel is that we cannot come to God on our own. Because of our sin, we are constantly pursuing unrighteousness. There is nothing that we can do to please God, and that includes coming to Him in repentance apart from His work in us. And how did God accomplish that work? He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who was fully man and fully God, to do something that no one else could do, to live a perfect sinless life and die a sinner's death on the cross and rise again to life on the third day. That's what God did. He sent his son to die in our place. And we are justified by faith in him 
through his death, and we are given life by him in his resurrection. And we live our lives in obedience to and love for him while we await being united to him in either our death or his return. This is the testimony of the apostles. This is the testimony of God's word. This is the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself. That Jesus is the Son of God in whom he is well pleased. Listen to him. And so the call to all of us today is to repent and believe the gospel. And maybe you're saying, I repented and believed the gospel a long time ago, preacher. Awesome. Repent and believe some more. We should all cry out like the centurion, I believe, help my unbelief. We all should recognize that we need to repent and believe the gospel. But if you are not in Christ, it is even more important for you to recognize that you are a sinner who is destined for eternal wrath apart from Jesus Christ and repent and believe in the gospel. Trust in the word of God, but trust ultimately in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so in just a moment, Brother Scott is going to come. Miss Rebecca, they're going to come. And we're going to sing together. And during that time, I encourage you to repent and believe the gospel, to trust fully in the testimony of the apostles and the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would today repent and believe the gospel, that we would trust fully in you, that we would know that Jesus is your son who died for us to save us from sin. And I pray that during this time, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.